0: Welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven and I'm pleased to be back with you. I had uh, presented the podcast for about six years and I decided it was time to take a bit of a break. So a year ago I stopped and now we've had a decent break and I feel revived again and back to it. Now, the Social World Podcast was something that I used very specifically to talk about social care, child protection, safeguarding but i always wanted to make it broader and a little bit more of a magazine program so that's what i now intend to do and i hope that you'll come with me on this journey i like to talk about stories that just interest people about about interesting people i'd want to mention history i want to talk about culture i want to talk about poetry i want to talk about writing as well as matters of uh, social care as well so i'm very happy to be back and There will be some changes, but I'm going to be listening to all of you as well as we go and take your feedback, and then we'll just see how far it goes. But uh, here's hoping and here's welcoming you back again. Now, to start with today, I'm going to make it a very personal one. My father's younger brother, my uncle, Robert Monroe Niven, Uh, would have been 100 this month. And it was very poignant that it made me think about it because, of course, VE Day, the celebrations that have just been uh, about the ending of the Second World War. So I thought, well, he did, towards the end of his life, he died last year, aged 99. He never quite made it to 100. But he was a marvellous man. And he, at the end of his life, decided to write a few things down. And... um, (laughs) In keeping with his personality, the way that he did, he wouldn't talk about things that were traumatic to him during the war, although I'm absolutely certain that Lot was. But he actually said um, that here are some of the nicer things I experienced during the Second World War. So, on his behalf, and I'll refer to him as Monroe during this, the name Robert, same for me, I'm Robert David, is a kind of family honorific. Many people called him Robert or Bob, but I always called him Monroe, which seemed in keeping. And that's what I'm going to do during this story. Now, he was a captain in the 2nd Highland Light Infantry Infantry Regiment, based originally in Glasgow. And he was um, part of uh, expeditions that took back Sicily. He was involved in um, Italy. Greece, the Middle East, and that whole part of the world, and that whole part of the war. And he met some phenomenally interesting and historically big figures, and it's this that I want to just share with you. So firstly, just a little bit of an introduction to him. It just shows you the type of um, atmosphere, if you like, that he was commissioned into at the time. And I'm going to use his words, all right? These are his words. When I was first commissioned, I travelled by train to join my new battalion based near Alnick in Northumberland. On arrival at Alnick Station, I was met by a very charming lady who told me that she was the wife of my new colonel, Harry Ross Skinner. And would I join her at her home for afternoon tea? when she would tell me all about her husband, what he liked, what he disliked, and it would help me get on with them in the the months and the years to come. I thought that was a very lovely touch and it was much appreciated. But apparently, Harry's uh, likes and dislikes were very simple, i.e. two specifically. The first was that his favourite drink was a pink gin, and that the war, number two, the war was going to be won with the bayonet. Uh, and that's all I was really told. And that we had a lovely afternoon and I went on to join my regiment. Now, after a successful invasion of Sicily, we eventually moved north to prepare for the other major invasion, this time Italy and we got word that General Montgomery was coming to wish us well and tell us all about the support that we'd get. On the day of that uh, visit, the battalion was formed up into a hollow square for his arrival. The colonel then asked me to go to the end of the road and look out for his car, which I did, and he came back to tell him that uh, he was there, and I said I'd go back and join the others, and he said, no, 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 go on down and wait there with Monty uh, until he was ready to come up. So when he arrived and stopped beside us we both saluted Monty got out of his car and then the colonel introduced me to him shook my hand wished me well and chatted to me generally and it was like talking at that time to the man next door completely different to how we'd been expected that he would behave and uh, that remained that vision of Monty remained with me for the rest of the war. Now my next experience that I wanted to share was in Egypt, in late 1943. Um, we were, I was just about to go to somewhere called the Cedars of Lebanon, which is a mountain range there, to learn how to become ski troopers, because at the time it was considered very important as we were going to be invading um, and retaking parts of Europe that effectively were in the midst of winter, that the battalion, or some of the battalion, effectively should be trained up much more in uh, winter warfare. And I was selected to be one of them. So we were camped just behind the pyramids. And this particular morning, I was going into Cairo at 7am to collect the battalion's pay. And as I passed the Sweetwater Canal, I looked out from my jeep and... To great surprise, in front of three villas, each with a balcony, three bungalow really, each with a balcony, on the first there was Winston Churchill leaning out of his balcony, chatting to the person on the next balcony, was Roosevelt, who was sitting in his invalid chair listening to Churchill. Now the both of them then saw me. I gave them a toot on my horn and the jeep and they both saw me and started waving. Churchill gave me his famous V sign and I saw already had a cigar in his other hand. And effectively they looked relaxed and they were particularly um, far on in discussions. And the third uh, bungalow, if you like, was totally closed up, dark, curtains drawn, not a soul in sight. And, of course, in there was Joseph Stalin. And it would have been just quite nice to have had all three, but for me, the memory of the two of them will remain forever. And Churchill was very cheery, gave me a cheery wave. And apparently the three of them were going to be having a meeting in the Mina House Hotel, which is right across the road from these bungalows. And we were aware of that for the next few days. So having actually seen them and met them. The next was to do with a small island in a Dalmatian island off the coast of Croatia that I was stationed in called Viz, V-I-S. And the events that happened on Viz, I didn't realise just how important they were until much afterwards. But anyway, here's here's the story. Now, I'll give you firstly the Wikipedia version of that event. The agreement was attempted by the Western powers to merge the royal Yugoslav government in exile with the communist-led partisans who were fighting the Axis occupation of Yugoslavia in the Second World War and were the de facto rulers on the liberated territories. And this Treaty of Viz, as it was called later, was actually signed... On the Dalmatian islands in June 1944 by Joseph Broz Tito who was the leader of the partisans and Ivan Subazi who was the prime minister of the royal government in exile and the actual formation of a new government was postponed for a few months but when it was signed with the Belgrade agreement an interim government was to be formed until the people would decide the form of government in democratic elections. Subasi became the foreign minister in a coalition government led by Tito. Now that's the outcome of that, that time there. For me, this is my story. This was Monroe's story. Whilst we were based on the island of Viz, we were advised by GHQ of the order from Winston Churchill to expect some VIPs and to double the guard. I went to the small airstrip and soon afterwards a small aircraft landed and outstepped Marshal Tito, Fitzroy Maclean, Major Churchill, no relation to Winston, and finally Randolph, Winston's son, brackets, a most unpleasant man. I then escorted them to the secret location where a villa had been provided for them and fully equipped for all their needs. My colonel provided them with one of our pipers during their stay and I visited them regularly during the week and Tito and the rest were all very appreciative and happy. Uh, Not so Randolph, who was as grumpy and miserable as usual. Now at the end of the week when I saw that the piper, and I told him that I'd relieve him with another, he asked if he couldn't just stay, because he said that Tito only knew one tune, Over the Sea to Sky, and he had to play it each evening. I said, well, don't you want somebody to relieve you about that? He said, no, 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 sir. He said, never mind, because the vodka was fantastic afterwards. I spent some time with Tito, um, escorting him and accompanying him during the few days that they were there. And on one occasion, I sat with him for most of an afternoon while we sat in a high position on the island, looking out over naval exercises. And we talked of family, we talked of the war, we talked of deprivation, we talked of his position. And I know now that he went on to get a very checkered reputation. Some thought him a great liberator, a benevolent dictator, if you like. Others thought him a very cruel man that uh, caused an awful lot of misery for thousands of people. So it really just depends which particular page you looked on. But for me, at the time, Tito actually was a friendly, genial, interesting man. Now, Early in 1945, when the war in Italy was drawing to a close, another interesting thing happened, and just one of these things that we were very lucky to experience. My good friend Nimmo Sterling and I had a few days leave, and we managed to hitch a lift in an American plane going to Rome. When we teamed up with the Church of Scotland minister, who was originally from Dumbarton, who was now in charge of the Church of Scotland Church in Rome. He knew his way around, so we were rewarded with an excellent tour of all the key places, including St Peter's, and we then made our way to the Sistine Chapel, just as the public seemed to be coming down the stairs in droves to the outside and leaving it. Undaunted, we slipped up the side and into the chapel only to discover that the Pope was going to be holding an audience with a group of VIPs. However, in spite of us gate-crashing, we were invited to join the others who were circled round the railing in a half-moon shape. The Pope then moved down to greet them and us and to ourselves when he shook hands with each of us and asked for the safety of our parents at home and how they had suffered at all from the German bombing and in which he actually told us that effectively he was so sorry about the atrocities that the Nazis had actually perpetrated. Now, this Pope we know was Pius XII, who actually assumed the papacy in 1939, and he went on to have a mixed reputation as well, in fact, it's never been denied that he did help thousands of Jews when he instructed his church to shelter them from the atrocities of the Nazis. But at the same time, we also know that the Allies felt that he didn't do enough to condemn the Axis powers and the atrocities that were perpetrated on Jews. And so for a long time, this particular Pope, who died in 1958, had a mixed reputation. But even so, I think in effect, now it's beginning to emerge that there was much more on the compassionate and saving lives side, and the absolute hatred of what the Nazi was doing in the papers that have recently been published. Just... A story, perhaps, that gave you a little bit more of an indication of some of the more absurd things that happened during the war. When we were back on Viz, there was what I call a match, really, that never was, in 1944. And the story is as follows. While resting peacefully in my bivouac during some not-too-active service on the island, one of, uh, which was really one of the most beautiful islands along the Dalmatian coast, In fact, contemporary people will realize that in 2017, this was the island that was used as the setting for the film Mamma Mia. And any of you that saw it, whatever you think of the film, will actually remember the beautiful scenery and the beautiful location that this island actually managed to offer. Anyway, my siesta was rudely interrupted by a somewhat agitated fellow officer, and from the signs and the urgency of his expression, he really needed some help. It seemed that he'd been enjoying the hospitality of our allies, uh, the uh, partisans, and and, uh, their conversations had switched from one topic to another as the bottle gradually emptied. The talks eventually ended up on the subject of water polo. Now, our transport officer at the time, who was the person referred to, that was the one that came to see me, was a man of the world, and although he didn't actually know anything about the particular sport, he was still quite prepared to discuss it, the pros and cons with them. His, his new comrades pushed the subject further and further, and then eventually suggested that since they were so keen to learn how the game was played, would it be possible for a friendly game to be set up between the battalion and themselves? Of course, said the transport officer, I can arrange that quite easily, and it's Here we come to the reason for the interruption of my siesta. Having convinced me that all this previous talk about them wanting to learn about water polo, I agreed to go along with the idea and soon discussed with them about how we could form a team. Considering myself and a corporal were the only two in the battalion who had ever played the game, but, undaunted, our gallant transport officer suggested that since half a dozen of his drivers went down each morning for a dip in the sea, he was sure that they would able to swim, and so they could volunteer to make up a team. It was about this stage that I began to feel a little bit uneasy about the situation, and what I'd let myself in for. I was to captain the side, or if for no other reason than the fact that I alone was familiar with the rules of the game. So it was now time for me to set up a programme. I thought, oh, okay, a programme of training and that at least could lick some of the lads into shape. (laughs) But this was immediately knocked on the head when my colleague informed me that the partisans had already set up the match for the day after next. In the circumstances, all that I could do now was to relax and let things take their own course. On the day of the match we gathered the various uh, members of the team together and piled them onto one of the 1500 weight trucks which would transport us to the field of conflict. I got into the back of the truck with them and spent a short time that we had giving them a very brief account of the rules of water polo. Now had I known then what was to follow I think it might have been better to leave them guessing about the rules. As we approached the town, our driver gave us a shout and told us to look out for the front of the vehicle and sure enough, there was the first of many shocks to come. Straddled across the road at the entrance to the town was a huge banner which read Grand International Water Polo Match Scotland vs Yugoslavia More shocks. On arrival at the harbour We were more than a little surprised to find the esplanade filled with the local population who had taken up positions opposite the floating pool in readiness for the great challenge match. We were then escorted to a building along the seafront where we were to change into our swim gear. And once we were ready, the guide came into our room to issue us with a complete set of polo caps. Where on earth did they manage to dig them up for in the middle of a war? but worse was to come. When I was asked to go next door and meet the opposition, so I did, I shook hands with each one of them, a bunch of big, handsome, very fit-looking lads. I left uh, wishing them good luck. But the next blockbuster was about to explode. As the guide and I left the room, I said to him that uh, the lads I'd just met were a fine, healthy lot. Oh, yes, he said. With only one exception, that was the entire 1936 Yugoslav Olympic water polo team. Good Lord, can things get any worse? Well, never mind, in for a penny, in for a pound. And as I told my team what had taken place when I went next door and who they were, I could see in their faces what I felt in my stomach. Well, never mind, lad, chin up, let's go along now and into the pool and do our best. Please wait, said the guide. Uh, We have a band waiting outside and the two teams were going to march along to the end of the promenade where a landing ship transport is waiting to take the teams out to the floating pool. We complied with the instructions and as we boarded the referee drew out clippers and said that we would have to cut our nails. I told him there was no way he was going to cut mine. But he could check with the lads and maybe some of them might be quite pleased to have them done, especially as they were either drivers or mechanics and might have actually needed a bit of attention anyway. And at last anyway, this landing craft reached the floating pool and the partisans made their way up to the highest point of the boat and with perfect position, precision, each in turn dived into the pool, reappeared about 20 yards inside the actual playing area. When I then asked my boys to follow suit, there was this look of shock again on their faces, and so I told them, OK, please get into the water, any way you can, and much to the amusement of all the spectators, ashore, each one in turn held their nose and jumped into the water. <laughs> but to my surprise, they all resurfaced, and we were all ready for the battle to begin. Referee blew his whistle, threw the ball into the middle, and I reckoned then that it was possible that after they had scored three or four goals, that that was the last that we even even touched the ball. So during the goal spree by our opponents, our misery was further stretched by the fact that three semi-drunk US Marines kept shouting from the promenade, Come on, Scotland! Their support wasn't all that helpful as it simply fueled the opposition to score another half a dozen goals before half time. In the second half, they realised the whole game was completely one-sided and they kindly threw the ball to our boys so that at least they handled the ball. And at the end of the game, they were pleased to shake our hands and thanks everybody. But incidentally, nobody knew where the US Marines had come from because there were no US forces in the area. Still, it was a good experience for all of our lads to meet with all the partisans, for me to meet Tito and later on to realize just what historic time that was on the island of Viz. Well, that was some of my uncle Monroe's experiences during the war. The nicer things, as he said, I'm sure there was plenty of things given the um, the route that he took and the fighting that he had to endure that weren't so nice. Uh, war is never nice. Um, And I've worked with people who've been to Vietnam, who've been to Iraq, and who've been to other wars in my lifetime, and it's a horrible thing. But to have these kind of memories and history was being made, I think, was something quite remarkable, and he was a remarkable man. So thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope it's now going to be the first of quite a magazine program, as I said, very pleased to get your ideas. Send them in to me. Send them to media at com. and effectively I'll try and include ideas and some nicer things from the social world. So, nice to be back. Nice to have you listening. Speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.